I think as a business owner, it's so important and not to be like cliche, but it's like, what is your why? And it was like, okay, my why is to help adults access play and access their inner child and like find meaning and purpose and all of that in playfulness. Mindfulness is not just meditation. It's not about sitting cross-legged, you know, listening to singing bowls and burning incense. <laughs> you can walk mindfully, you can eat mindfully, you can draw and color, even play. Play is mindfulness. Play is being present. When you're actually properly playing hide-and-seek, you are just in the game mm-hmm. and you're so present. It's stepping outside of autopilot. It's stepping outside of your everyday. And like one thing I always joke, if you want to be mindful, brush your teeth with the other hand. And I think the number one tip around productivity is to rest. Mm. And that sounds really counterproductive. But again, you're not going to be able to do your best work when you're cross-eyed at your computer because you've been banging away at your keyboard for 10 hours. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Y2 podcast, where I interview interesting and noteworthy people to learn about their journeys and specifically look to understand their beliefs, values, mindset, and the resources they use to get started and succeed on their journey. I'm your host, Dustin Elliott, and I'm very excited to introduce Y2 Podcast's first official sponsor, YZ. YZ is an easy-to-use online training software that makes it so simple to create and deliver online training. I actually love this product so much, I reached out to these guys and wanted to work with them as I see a lot of potential and power of the system for the clients. This online training software is very flexible, and you can use it to automate a whole range of tasks in your business. For example, you can manage all of your employee training, uh, train customers and partners in your products, track licenses and qualifications of your staff, create and sell online courses, capture more leads by creating free online courses, and so much more. Jump over to their website, yz.com, that's w-y-z-e-d.com, to check out some of the videos and even get your own free 14-day trial. And when you're over there, let them know I sent you. But getting back to today's interview, and today's guest is none other than Dara Simkin. Dara is an author and mindset coach who runs Project Play, which fosters creativity, encourages innovative thinking, and improves employee engagement by cultivating a new culture of business with strategic play. She utilizes research in the field of play from neuroscience and psychology to animal play behavior and evolutionary biology. Project Play has crafted experiential play programs for businesses and professionals. Today, Dara tells us her story of starting out in PR and marketing in Florida to winning an all-expense-paid trip to Tasmania and moving to Australia, eventually taking a dramatic turn into what she does today. She also comes to us today with a tremendous amount of insight and knowledge into the areas that are fundamental to our growth. This is a wide-ranging chat where we go deep into themes of mindfulness and our relationship with ourselves. We explore what we need to do to ensure we're balanced, productive, fulfilled humans living in a complex and busy world. But with that being said, let's get right into it. Dara, welcome to the YT Podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. I, I want to just give a quick audio shout out to Rohi Bhagava uh, for the kind introduction. Obviously, really, really excited to have you on the show today. And uh, obviously, from our from our chat, from initially, um, really, really love the work you're doing. And obviously, all the sort of stuff we'll get to a little bit later today. And obviously, as my guests know, we we'll go through a bit of a journey to, un, you know, tell your story and unravel that. But 
probably a little bit more than that as well, too, just for guests, just my listeners to keep them obviously going on a little bit later on today. Obviously, we'll through the podcast, we'll talk a bit more about mindfulness and that sort of stuff and some nuts and bolts and some aspects as well, too. So a bit of a bit of a different podcast today. But thank you so much for coming on and obviously sharing your wisdom and your, your story. Big shout out to Rohit. Boy, Rohit. <laughs> so. As always, we always want to start the story off to or start the podcast off with a bit of a bit of a story. And I know from from our conversation, obviously, about what you wanted to tell, we share a bit of a kinship, obviously, being uh, being non-Australians in this uh, incredibly hot land where everything's trying to kill us and snakes and spiders and everything in between. But I love if you could just tell us a bit about your your journey to Australia. Sure. So my accent is American. You're a Canadian. Yeah. I don't know if the listeners can tell the difference. They'll probably just assume that you're Canadian and I'm American. Let's be honest. (laughs) It's fine. (laughs) So I was traveling Europe after I graduated from uni and I met a bunch of Australians who were very fun. And I thought to myself, wow, I would really like to visit Australia. One girl in particular, Emily, we became really close and we stayed in contact via Facebook and Skype and things like that. And randomly, about a year or two later, I met a couple of Kiwi travelers who worked for MTV in New Zealand, and they quit their job to travel the world and create their own television show. And upon meeting them, they mentioned that they had entered a competition to win an all-expenses-paid trip to Australia. And they basically had to create a two-minute video of themselves, show that they could handle a camera and that they had a good personality, and they were going to take a van around uh, Queensland from Cairns to Brisbane. And once I left, I was really intrigued to learn a little bit more about this trip. And I saw that you could still apply. So I called on my contacts. A friend of mine was, uh, my friend of mine went to Berkeley Music School and another friend of mine was a videographer. And we put together this fantastic video. And my best friend and I won an all expenses paid trip to Tassie. Wow. Now, some Australians might scoff at the idea of any mainlanders going, oh, whatever, Tassie, but it was actually incredible. So we got round trip airfare from uh, Florida, where I'm from, to Melbourne, and then we picked up the van that the guys that were in New Zealand had consequently driven in Brisbane, or sorry, from Kent to Brisbane. And we took the spirit of Tassie over, and for four weeks, we traveled around Tassie and did everything that you could possibly do. So we rafted the Franklin River for seven days. We went to Falls and got VIP. Uh, we went to Bruni Island. We went to the Malaluka region, walked the Tarkine Trail. It was incredible. Mm. And when my friend and I won, we decided that we were kind of over living in South Florida. We would quit our jobs, uh, sell all of our stuff and get the working holiday visa. Mm-hmm. So we did that. And finally, left. And the, the girl I mentioned earlier, Emily, I rang her and said, holy shit, I want a trip to Australia. <laughs> So I ended up living on her couch for about six months when I got my working holiday visa, fell in love with Melbourne. I do say Melbourne, not Melbourne. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I was able to make the right contacts. And a couple of years later, long story short, got uh, sponsored and got sponsored, did my two years, got my PR. And now I've been here for almost six years. Mm, fantastic fantastic very sort of very similar to my story as well too although I didn't I didn't win a trip I had to pay my lowly way from northern Canada <laughs> to Melbourne so those were some expensive tickets I'm very jealous of that fact alone and hopefully find something better than economy for 14 hours over the Atlantic but nonetheless um so obviously we're about to uh, dive into your story a bit more but I as always we kind of want to go back to back to the beginning of your story and, and try to obviously learn a little bit more about you and um I know as I talk about, my listeners are probably tired of hearing this, but when I when I always introduce to somebody and I'm looking at interviewing them on the podcast, I was looking at their LinkedIn as well too. And what's your degree in again? I can't remember. Public relations. Public relations. So obviously we'll talk about that. So you did some stuff around there, but, but why public relations? Obviously comparing what you do now as a mindfulness coach to public relations, like 
what made you start there? Um, I'm probably like the the biggest laziest doer. Uh, so when I started uni, I started with a poli sci uh, degree or like studying poli sci, and then I got my first C. And I was just like, nah, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. But my parents had said, oh, you should be a lawyer. And I was like, sure. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I never really ever knew what I wanted to do. I, I actually wanted to be an actress when I was younger. And my grandma said it wasn't a viable career. So crushed my dreams. At a very <laughs> thanks, age. grandma. Yeah. Rest in peace, but thanks. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so after I got my first C in political science, and they say on average freshmen change their degree or, you know, what they major in like, seven or eight times or something ridiculous. And kind of asked around some of the older girls that I was friends with and said, what's a really easy major mm. that, that I would kind of be good at? And they were like, oh, you should do PR. And there's like writing because I'm quite creative. And they're like, there's some writing in it. It's pretty simple, blah, blah, blah. It's like, sure, I'll do that. Mm. And so that's kind of how I ended up doing <laughs> public relations. Wow. So were there any particular vision for like why you went to university in the first place? Or was it just a matter of, oh, I need a degree and... I did not want to live at home. Mm-hmm. My mom and I had a very tumultuous relationship. And my older sister said to me, if you want to get out of here, you need to do well in school and mm-hmm. go to college. Uh, and so that's what I did. I just made sure that I did really well in school and got myself out of my house. And yeah, I just wanted the freedom to to live away from home and make my own choices. And I guess as an American as well, I think it's pretty different in Australia, but as an American, you're almost expected to go to college. Mm. You're kind of expected to go and do that. That's your, that's your, that's your, your track to do, mm. you know, go to, go to college, meet someone, get married, you know, have your job, your white picket fence, your nuclear family, et cetera. And so, yeah, it was just kind of, I guess, an expectation to, to go to uni. Mm. So you finish your degree. Um, PR marketing. Where did you go from there? Obviously, as, as somebody who's sort of trying to trying to find themselves, what was your first role then? I worked for a really foofy agency in Miami. And <laughs> what is foofy? <laughs> well, they had clients like Chanel and Prada mm. and things like that, and it was like the Devil Wears Prada. Yeah, I'm sure most people have know that story, but I was the executive assistant or personal assistant to this crazy plastic surgery donned woman who had like massive mirrors and, and a portrait self portraits in her office. And I did that for like three months and I hated it. I was basically her bitch. Mm. So I would like prepare her meals, take her dry cleaning. The first, the first task they ever had me do was find someone to scrape the barnacles off the bottom of their boat. (laughs) Yeah. So I just realized uh, after those three months that I was probably not going to touch any piece of, media or work with any clients and so I quit I moved on to franchise PR which was boring as shit so it was what is like franchise PR so like working in the franchise space so basically like writing a press release that says uh, Dunkin Donuts is opening in Wichita <laughs> Kansas I was like fuck me that's so boring <laughs> also part of me I do swear sometimes yeah, um, I give it. and I do make the joke that I read a study that people who swear are more trustworthy because they have less filters so everyone should trust everything that I say. Fucking A, that's awesome. <laughs> See, you're so Canadian, you just said fucking A. Fucking A, absolutely. <laughs> now everyone can decipher between Americans and Canadians. You guys say A. I'll say A at the end of everything. How's it going, A? <laughs> uh, so yeah, I did franchise PR for like six months. A little part of my soul was dying as I sat at my desk every day and stared at my clock. And just realized that I am not a human being which can sit at a desk. Because I did that for up to, like for those six months and the three months prior, 
And I found this random job, uh, which, which was a brand manager for a, a liquor brand. Mm-hmm. And it was about like jumping around South Beach, going to bars, going to clubs, making relationships, doing events. And I was like, sweet, that sounds great. It's not in an office. Mm-hmm. And applied for the job. And uh, I was up against this other woman who had shitloads more experience than me. But because I was so passionate and I said, you know, what I what I lack on paper, I make up for and my tenacity and drive and blah, blah, blah. And just, you know, smoke and mirrored the shit of that out of the interview. And yeah, they chose to to have me on board. And so I started out as a contractor. I got to put together this amazing event. We rented a multi-million dollar mansion in Miami <laughs> and invited Jeez. invited a bunch of like trade influencers and bar owners and bartenders to experience these like different kind of foods and stations of the booze that I worked for. Mm. And I actually, they were doing this activation in all the major cities of the U.S. And I did, I had the most activations and the most, uh, you know, menu placements and all of that. So they created a position for me. And so I became a full-time employee of um, this particular brand. And I, yeah, traveled all over South Florida and worked for them and did events and things like that. So what about that particular, like you talk about, you, you did the, you didn't really enjoy the just job and whatnot, but, but what, what about it really interested you? Like, why did you do so well versus everybody else? Um, I love talking to people. I love socializing. I love connecting and to be able to just flint around and, you know, to my own, to the beat of my own drum to make things happen. It just really works well for me. The, mm-hmm. the, the autonomy, I really thrive in mm-hmm. autonomy. I think some people get, you know, are challenged in being self-motivated, which is fine. Um, but yeah, just for some reason I, I'm, I'm a massive doer and I can get things done at, when I'm, when I can get things done at my own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do really well mm-hmm. when I have to, when I'm working for someone else, I really struggle. Mm. So from, from you were 24, you said at that time mm. when you're working that job. So where did your, um, you read a book, I think at age 20 mm. that really impacted you. What was that book again? Um, so I read the book, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle, mm-hmm. um, a close girlfriend of mine. She was kind of on this journey and she was doing yoga and meditation. And, um, I come from a really strange religious background. So my entire family is Jewish, but my parents divorced when I was seven. And through that kind of those trials and tribulations, my dad found Jesus. And so I came from this very now split background of like my parents calling or my grandparents calling my dad a Jesus freak and just feeling really uncomfortable around the idea of religion and belief and death and all of that and grew up just really confused about it all and so when I got to uni you know you question things when you're Mm -hmm. at uni now you're you're by yourself and you're becoming more of an individual and figuring out your life path and so my friend said oh I just read this book you should totally read it and so I read it, and for those people who don't know what it's about, mm. it's just about um, it talks about ego. It talks about self awareness and consciousness, and you know the oneness of being a human. And some people believe in that, and some people don't, and that's totally okay. But for me, it just deeply resonated with me, and I thought this is, exa- is exactly what I want to continue to pursue: is you know looking at us as energy and how to connect to the greater good. And it just I think that we all kind of search for meaning. And we make it in whatever way we want to. Mm. And for me, this kind of spiritual path just made sense. It just clicked for some reason. And I think things click for people. And maybe we don't really know why, but it feels good. And so we do it. Mm -hmm. And that just was a trajectory of 
yoga and meditation. And I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm a, I'm a book junkie. So I was just reading book after book after book. And I think we can fall into a trap of book reading. It's like, how are you going to apply the book? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when we become book obsessed, we don't actually allow ourselves to apply the learning. And so I think sometimes it's, it's good to be mindful of the intention of reading the book and what are, what are you getting out of it? And what is the application and things like that? But it was just, I became fascinated with human behavior. I came, became fascinated with how to be a better human and just continued that journey. Um, I lived on an ashram for a month and really deeply explored myself there and had to meditate every day and, you know, was going to the toilet and a drop toilet or, or in a compost toilet mm. and um, was out in the bush and ended up having bats in my room one day. I got bit by, a, I got bit by a, like a poisonous ant. Like everything was just pushing up against me immensely. And I actually wanted to bail when I was there for the first week. And the kind of guru guy who ran the ashram, we had to apply to live there. Mm -hmm. And he was reading through my application and he's like, Dara, you know, you're so well-traveled. Why not you, you let the next place you travel be yourself? Holy shit. That's deep. That's the most profound thing anyone has ever said to me. And I had a I had a history of bailing when things got hard. Mm. And whether or not I I reflect on the fact of, you know, why did I move to Australia? Was I trying to bail out of some situation that was hard? I probably wasn't the happiest human living in Miami. I mean, I found Miami to be very egoic, very image-driven. Mm. A lot of people compare it to the Gold Coast. Sorry for those people who live on the Gold Coast, but I would imagine if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably not you. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I like my life kind of changed in the moment that that long, you know, bearded Italian man who was running this ashram, who was like 70 years old, when he said, "Why don't you let the next place you travel be yourself?" I just went even deeper in that, in that space and was like, yes, that's totally where I want to keep going. Mm. So as you're going through that exploration, what did that actually, what did that look like? Was that just journaling or what sort of exercise was taking you through? Yeah. I mean, it was journaling, it was reading, it was, um, doing yoga, it was meditating, it was taking different courses and I've done like, you know, tantric relationships courses and not so much like tantra as it is like all sexual positions, but mm. the actual, way of life that the tantrics adopt which is basically you know getting the most out of everything you do so mm -hmm. you can be a tantric and get the most out of what you're eating and get the most out of your relationship and get the most out of sex and so I've done a couple of workshops around that and yeah I mean just talking to people and being open and just going to therapy and having a coach and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm. So I'm really curious. So you obviously, you're going quite a profound journey out of this from reading this book kind of thing. Do you feel there was, obviously, even though you're going for, you're going through a bit of a, a, a search for it, you're supposed in your twenties, but um, you know, why do you think this sort of clicked in? Like, and I said, you don't know necessarily know why, but if you look back were were there sort of inklings of that before you read this book, was there sort of, uh, a curiosity already of exploring that or where did that deep kind of idea any idea where that sort of started to come out of and the book might have just you know uncovered a rock that you were kind of walking past every day well I think the whole confusing religious background kind of put me there because again oftentimes we can adopt the beliefs of our parents and if we don't agree with them then we kind of look for something else if we want to mm. and I don't know I I would I would guess I've just I'm just a seeker 
and some people are seekers and some people are not mm. and you know we're the same but we're different and it's just we are the sum whole parts of all of our experiences and yeah some of us choose to go deep and some of us don't and mm-hmm. some of us want to know everything about us and why we do the things we do and some of us are happy to not mm. and everything is that's all okay Mm-hmm. Obviously, you went on that journey. So you you came to Australia. Um, obviously, you you were working for PR and marketing again, kind of thing. But how did that journey of discovery and kind of going through that? How did that translate when you came to Australia? Did it change or did it inflect at all? Having a different environment. I think I had fought so hard to get my PR to be here that once I arrived, I was like, "Oh shit, I'm here now. What? Who do I want to be?" Like I I wanted to let go of the person I was in Miami. I was terrible with money. I was obsessed with my self-image. I used to, it took me an hour and a half to get ready because I was thrashing through outfits and like being from such a image-driven image driven place, it affected me immensely. And I knew that living in Melbourne, I didn't want to be that. Mm. And so I just sought help. And so I looked up different mindful psychologists and went and did my first session there. But I wasn't in a space where I wanted to dig into my childhood. It was mm. like, I'm here now. What do I do now? I was speaking to a friend of mine and his brother was uh, a coach at the time. And he's like, you should chat with my brother. I think you guys would really resonate. And we did. I mean, we, we clicked immediately. And so he coached me through all of my image issues. And it was funny. He was like, you're only allowed to try on two outfits. Mm. And while that might seem ridiculous to some men, I'm sure there's female <laughs> listeners going, oh, oh my goodness, I do that. Yeah. And whatever the reason is, I think it's you know heavily based in, in, in anxiety. Um, you know, giving, that, giving that limitation to myself of only wearing two outfits or only being able to choose one of two outfits freed up so much of my time. <laughs> and it, it made me just go, all right, fuck it. This is what I'm wearing. This is, I'm leaving the house. And I yeah. think that we obsess so much about what other people think of us when most people don't give a shit. Mm. Most people are not looking at what you're wearing. And if they are, they're thinking about it for a moment and then it's gone. But where do you think that comes from though? Uh, in, in myself or in the humanity? I'd say humanity and in reflection, maybe in yourself as well too, in the same part. Um, I'm, I mean, we judge. It's part of being a human. I mean, we, we judge based on survival. So when we were cavemen and women, we would judge if that rock in the distance was gonna, was a tiger or if that tribe was going to kill us or if, you know, when are, where are we going to get our next meal from? So, you know, we, we, we judge as, as a form of survival. I mean, animals judge as well. Mm. They need to judge, is this safe? Is this not safe? But I believe through evolution and through our society of commercialism and, and all of that, we now judge heavily based on the things we have and the way we look. And I mean, we judged beauty as well. Like I was reading an article a while ago or or a book or whatever, I was reading something. (laughs) And it was just saying that, you know, we judged beauty back in the day when we were cavemen and women, because beauty meant that you were healthy Mm. and healthy meant that your genes would, would, would continue. And that was why that was our thing. You know, it was like, we're a vehicle for, for our genes. And so if I was a caveman and there was like a really, you know, bodacious cave chick with like big boobs and, you know, childbearing hips, I'd be like, sweet, I want to shag her. Mm -hmm. Or if there was a caveman, he had like big pecs and big muscles. I'm like, oh, sweet, he'll protect me. Mm -hmm. And so judging aesthetics has has definitely been, even in animal behavior, look at like 
I'm sure some people have seen the planet earth of the rainforest or the birds and like the male birds, mm-hmm. like look at a peacock. They're like, they're so showy. Mm-hmm. And so other, other female peacocks are gonna be like, Oh yeah, he's a sexy peacock. You know, I want to get with him. So we can, we can beat ourselves up, beat ourselves yeah. up over being judgmental. However, that's the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. But I make a joke. It's like, you can judge and you can be a judgy McJudgerson. And so when you're judging someone across the road, because they're wearing a stupid hat, you need to ask yourself what's happening for you and why you're judging that person. Mm. And do you wish that you had the balls to wear that hat? And mm. that's why you're you're judging them or, you know, it's always us. Like if you're judging someone else, you're really judging yourself. I think that's a, a quote by Wayne Dyer. Um, so yeah, I invite people when they are judging someone to check in and figure out what's happening for them mm. and what the root of that judgment is and if they're actually getting anything out of it. So then going back to your experience of obviously trying to make this sort of this continuation of the journey of maybe even using this example specifically. So do you remember what exercises this mindfulness coach took you through to sort of help you kind of start breaking some of those kind of uh, frameworks down, mental frameworks down? Was it just a rule or were there other things? Um, I had a post-it note on my mirror that said, get over yourself, (laughs) which was, which was very valuable. (laughs) And it was just basically like, again, nobody gives a shit about Mm. what you're wearing. Why are you taking hours out of your life every day to 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 care Mm. so when I was looking in the mirror I would see this little note that would say get over yourself and no mantras don't always have to be fluffy Mm. (laughs) and yeah that was that you know that stirred me up and that was what I needed Mm -hmm. so there was other things that we went through but nothing nothing sticks out as, Mm -hmm. as much as the two outfit rule and the sticky note of get over yourself Absolutely. Well, I think that's important though, too. Like, I think, you know, we talked a little bit about like values and goals and stuff like that in the podcast, but they're essentially just kind of rules to sort of help govern yourself through sometimes. And if you're trying to change, change behavior, then trying to put those rules in play to sort of help self-manage yourself or help self-regulate yourself to sort of what you want to be, right? So like myself coming from a bit more of a, a fitness perspective, you know, the rules around fitness, around around exercise, or sorry, around diet specifically kind of thing, right? So it doesn't have to be this this huge strategy. Sometimes the simplest things are the best things, I guess. Eh? Ah, for sure. And I think that it's all about baby steps. Mm. And the more we push ourselves to, to change or be different, it's like the more pressure we're putting on ourselves and the less we're going to want to do it. And if we can just be kind to ourselves and understand that we are a human being and when you're on this journey of self-exploration, you're going to fuck up and you're going to fall off the wagon and you're going to go back to your old habits and you just have to be okay with that and understand that, okay, if I sit and dwell on the fact that I ate a ate a donut when I'm supposed to be on this fitness journey, mm. I can sit and dwell on the donut for days or hours or however long, and that's going to set me back 11 steps. Mm. Or I can eat the fucking donut, go, mm, probably shouldn't have eaten that, but it was delicious. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now I'm gone. I'm back one step mm-hmm. instead. So we choose, like, we're still going backwards a little bit, but it's like, okay, am I going backwards a few steps by actually doing the act of eating the donut? Or am I going back 25 steps because I've just be- beaten myself up? over eating a fucking donut yeah absolutely and i think interesting too even in that maybe the donut analogy is maybe a little bit resonates a little bit too close for me but why did you have the donut in the first place like were you bored were you stressed mm. did you were you just really really hungry and the donut just happened to be an appealing alternative too but trying to understand that there's there's usually a trigger to do something as well too and the donut's just the result of that or, or the the thing we recognize is the step back but why did that happen in the first place and then trying to i deal that and address that too 
But I also sometimes think that it's like a donut is delicious. Yeah. And like our brain is wired to get dopamine when we have sugar. Mm -hmm. And so if you eat a donut once every couple of months, it's okay. Just for the idea of having a donut? And yeah. I mean, I, I actually do that. It's, for me, I like donuts, mm -hmm. but I know I can't eat donuts every day. But every once in a while, I walk by a donut shop and I'm like, I'm going to have a donut. Mm -hmm. And I love it. And it's delicious. And, you know, we are what we eat as mm -hmm. well. But in the same breath, it's like if I stress over that donut, like it's the worst fucking thing I could have ever done. Like my body is in a stressful state and I'm not going to even digest the donut properly mm -hmm. because I'm like in my fight or flight mode when I should be in my rest and digest. <laughs> and just, you know, to go into the autonomic nervous system mm -hmm. with our, you know our um, sympathetic nervous system. If I'm stressed out whilst eating that donut, you know, like it's not going to become what it needs to become in my body, which is like this beautiful gift of sugar. Mm. <laughs> and so it's really the way that we, we relate to things. The more we obsess over things and the more we beat ourselves up. Like one thing I can't wrap my head around is like this thing with women about feeling guilty mm. or like, Ooh, I'm naughty because I'm eating a donut. Like who the fuck cares? Like eat the donut and love eating it. And that's when mindfulness comes into yeah. play. It's like I'm eating this donut and I'm tasting it and I'm present to the donut and I can smell it and it's delicious. And in these 10 minutes that I'm enjoying the donut, it's bliss. Mm. And then you let it go mm. and that's okay. And it's all about moderation. Like I had a Chinese medicine doctor tell me ages ago, it's like, if you want to eat fried chicken, eat fried chicken. But eat it mindfully, eat it slowly, and don't eat it all the time. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. if you deprive yourself, yes. instead of having one piece of fried chicken, you have a bucket. Mm -hmm. Or instead of one donut, you have 12. Because you're like, oh my god, I can't wait to eat this. Uh, instead of just going, I'm going to have this one donut, and it's going to be delicious, and I'm going to move on. Mm -hmm. Totally. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's interesting too, because I think a lot of time, like we spoke about sometimes my struggle in my life is I go, okay, I know I shouldn't be eating the donut all the time, but then trying to find where that balance is. Sometimes I have a bit of a habit of going too far to the left. So no donuts. And then, but at the same time, also not really enjoying that too. So I'm sort of back to square one where I'm like, well, I'm not happy. And then trying to find, then trying to eat back a little bit more towards, okay, what are my goals? What am I trying to do? But yeah, like I said, still enjoying it, having a freaking donut and yeah, loving it and being okay with that. It's just, it's balance. And it's also finding peace with your body. And I mean, I was working on with this, uh, I was working on this with a client the other day. If you hate your body, what is your incentive to take care of it? So it's like, mm. oh, I'm so overweight and I look disgusting and I hate my body what in that is going to make you want to take care of something? Like, do you take care of things you hate? Mm. No. So it's like shifting the mindset around, yeah, maybe I am overweight and maybe I am, this isn't where I want to be, but I still love my body. Mm -hmm. And if I love it, I'm going to want to look after it. Mm -hmm. But if I hate it, what's my incentive to actually exercise and nourish it and, and, and care about it mm -hmm. if I hate it? Absolutely. hundred percent. So I suppose kind of going back to your, to your story a little bit is. We so digressed a bit. We di that's good. No, that's <laughs> really, I love this. This is good. Well, I think we're going to get into a lot more of this in a sec, but I suppose mm. just to help listeners uh, kind of frame the rest of the picture, because we, we have you in Australia working PR marketing kind of thing, mm. but and obviously going through a bit of a, a mindfulness a journey through yourself is mm. probably a better way to explain it. So how did you go from PR marketing to a mindfulness coach? What was sort of that journey like for yourself? 
Uh, like I said, I, I when I first arrived here, I got coached myself, mm-hmm. and I got a lot of value out of it. And my coach said you should be a coach, and I was like, mm. Did he have, did he say why you should be a coach? What um, he just said that I'm I'm really getting what's going on. I'm obviously really passionate about it. I I have the personality for it. Like I'm I'm very personable and warm and things like that. And so I was like, All right, I, I guess I could try that. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, I wasn't overly excited about doing PR and marketing. And, um, yeah, so I went and checked out a uh, certification and yeah, just decided, yeah, okay, I'll do this. And then just made it work. Mm. So how did you get started then? So you go for, you get this certification, then you go, okay, I'm now a mindfulness coach. Mm. What does that look like? How does, how did you kind of get that rolling? Um, I s- started coaching people, um, like friends of friends. Mm-hmm. So you, you never want to coach your friend or your family. Mm-hmm. It's just a disaster. But just got a couple of referrals here and there, you know, charging very little per hour. And just working with a few people that I knew and just gaining that experience and, and getting really good feedback and just that kind of growing from there and um, just affiliating myself. Like once I got my certification in my PR, um, just recognizing and doing a lot of research around communities that I want to be connected with and places that I want to be affiliated with. And so for me, it was like General Assembly was fantastic. I worked with a lot of different co-working spaces like the Cowork Co and One Roof Melbourne and offered a lot of my services for free, like did free workshops and just saw the fact that, okay, I'm giving the service of the free workshop. And mm-hmm. if what I'm saying resonates with people, they'll want to be my client. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it just started to build and build and build. And I had a lot of faith in myself and I was uh, very tenacious and I knew that this is what, this is what I wanted to do. And of course there was its financial struggles and, you know, how am I going to pay my rent and what am I doing? And the, you know, self-doubt definitely creeps in, but have always believed in myself and known that I can do things if Mm -hmm. I give myself the space and the permission to. And so it just built, came, you know, built and built and built and built. And, um, after a couple of years, I had a very stable client list. I was seeing like 20 people on, you know, had a viable business. But for me, it was always important to legitimize myself. So mm-hmm. as soon as I got certified, I got, you know, private, uh, private, you know, public indemnity and mm-hmm. got insurance so that I could work at a well-being center. Because for me, it wasn't about coaching someone in a cubicle or at a cafe. It was like your mindset and your headspace is a totally connected part of your body it's all holistic so i want to work alongside massage therapists and acupuncturists and chinese medicine doctors and so found a clinic in the city that actually a client of mine worked at and was able to get um, a position there as their as their mindset coach um and yeah just always wanted to be legitimate affiliate with the right people because coaching isn't regulated mm. it's a very you know shady thing i think now there's more coaches that than people that need it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so yeah it was always just about like being as authentic and legitimate and and purpose driven as possible in order to show the legitimacy and the and the need and the and the i guess um yeah benefit of working with a coach mm. as opposed to a psychologist or a therapist or a psychotherapist. I mean, I think every single service like that has its place. It all depends on the person and where they're at and what they need. 
Um, I mean, at the moment I see a therapist because I'm now in a position in my life where I'm ready to dig deep into my childhood and I'm ready to go there and I've been going there and it all depends on where you're at again Mm. and what you need. And Mm. sometimes therapy is not for you at the moment and you want to see a coach or sometimes coaching is not for you and you want to see a therapist or a psychiatrist or whatever. Mm. So I suppose for yourself, and this might be, this might be a bit of, you might've kind of already answered this, but why did you become a coach in the first place? I mean, of of taking the jump from a job and a steady income and going and doing this. Why did you go do that? My number one value is connection. I love creating meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. And also with my passion for self-development and spirituality and seeking and all of that, I just thought you know, being a coach would be give me the opportunity to support people through that and use my own experiences and my own you know, trials and tribulations and everything that I had gone through, you know, be able to really hold space for people. And I think that, yeah, I, I do my best to create that space of safety and um, openness and non-judgment and everything like that. And just, yeah, giving people the support that they might not necessarily think that they have, um, you know, sometimes we don't want to talk to our friends or our family about where we're at. And if that's not your thing, then that's what that's what psychologists and coaches and therapists are for, to give you that support to go there if you don't feel safe or comfortable sharing it with the people who are closest to you. Mm. And I know one thing we spoke about before we started rolling the podcast as well too today is um, obviously we talk about coach. It has a very like you're old, you're in a suit, and it just has a very sort of stuffy connotation as well, too. But you obviously will talk a bit more about what you act, like, you know, your sort of what you do in terms of obviously the mindfulness, you know, um, I don't know where I was really going with that question. Sorry. Um, yeah, sorry. So why did you, so, so what's your sort of take on sort of coaching and stuff like that? It's about mindfulness, but I guess the question I want to ask, sorry, is how do you kind of go about delivering that then? Uh, I guess, again, for me, it was always about being different Mm -hmm. and removing myself from the, I guess, the stigma that can sometimes be around the coaching world. And like like I said earlier, I always wanted to be an actress. And so it was like, how can I bring my passion for kind of theater and performance and entertaining people? And how can I translate that into what I'm doing now? And so when I run workshops, I dress up and I create these different personas, which help me reach my audience in a very different way. So Mm. for instance, I'll run a productivity workshop dressed like a superhero and I have a full on kind of team, like, um, uh, what's her name? The American superhero lady. Superwoman. Superwoman. Yep. (laughs) Total brain fart there. I'm pretty sure it's in theaters at the moment, (laughs) but I have this amazing superwoman costume and I call myself captain productive. And I just, yeah, use that as a way to connect with my audience and have a bit of humility and let them know that, you know, I'm a bit of a weirdo and, you know, like Mm. they could be laughing at me or with me or whatever, but I just find that there's such a beautiful human way of connecting, but with humor. Mm. And it's also a great way to build trust. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of how I open or start my workshops is by introducing this silly character and just also making what I do approachable. So though, though we are talking about productivity where that can be a really strong pain point for people. Mm. Um, but when I come out in a superhero costume, it's like, Oh, okay. Like this is funny, but then also providing people really tangible 
um, adaptable content. Can you give us a couple examples of what that would look like or what that, of, what that of, session would look like? Of how like? to be productive? Yeah, sure. Or how you kind of sort of the idea or go a bit deeper in terms of what that, uh, what that session looks like. Um, I always like to explain to people why we do what we do. So again, from the, that kind of anthropological perspective around fear or judgment or safety or whatever, um, also sprinkling in a bit of science around the way our, our stress hormones work and our, um, our autonomic nervous system and things like that. So I try to really um, have something for everyone. So if there's like those very analytical science driven people, I've, I've appeased them with a bit of science stuff mm-hmm. um, for the creative people. I've, I'm, I'm dressed as a superhero um, for practical people. I've got really easy tips that they can apply. Um, so yeah, just kind of going through a bit of a background of we're humans. This is okay. This is why we do what we do. So now let's look at how we can start making little shifts. Mm-hmm. So a matter of looking at it from say, the biological evolutionary point of view, and then looking at sort of the modern workplace and just mm-hmm. trying to sort of bridge the two together about mm-hmm. how with this sort of old world brain, we can, you know, use that effectively in a, you know, 21st century environment. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So what sort of, um, so I know obviously your big thing is play as well too. I know that's one of the big elements. I wonder if you could just take us through a little bit about that as well too for us. Absolutely. Um, so obviously being able to dress up in costume is very playful. And again, I've always been the joker and the one that gives, you know, shoots off the witty comments and cracks jokes and is silly. And so I guess the way that this kind of connects is for my 30th birthday two years ago, um, I wanted to obviously throw something awesome because it's your 30th. Ooh, 30. <laughs> and at the time in the U.S., there, all these like adult summer camps were becoming really popular. Mm-hmm. And a friend of mine had sent me an article that she found in the New York Time Out magazine about these summer camps for adults. And she sent me this article. And I was like, oh, my God. I grew up going to summer camp. And I was like, I'm going to put on a summer camp for my friends for my mm-hmm. 30th. So I had 40 of my friends all together on a weekend away at this really awesome site that had accommodation and a big lounge room and everything. And I put on this fantastic weekend of summer camp and we all were on a team colors. We had mm-hmm. red team, yellow team, blue team, green team. And we all played kickball and ultimate Frisbee. And I did a relay race with like tug of war and egg and spoon. And we ate beautiful food and had a dress up party <laughs> and brought and basically like brought summer camp to Australia. Were you a superwoman again? I was actually. Nice. That was that, that costume was first erected. Aha, uh-huh, I see. <laughs> But um, all my Australian friends were like, oh, my God, summer camp. So cool. Because Australians only ever go to school camp, which mm. is just very different from summer camp. And they were like, you should do this as a thing. Like, this could be a part of your coaching, like bringing people to these summer camps and being a kid and blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, yep, Dara Dewar Simkin, I'm on it. So mm-hmm. I was like, made a website, made a logo. Because of my PR background, I was able to get a half page spread in the Sunday age. I had 500 people visit my website that day. I had mm. one conversion. And I was like, oh, so I realized that there's this massive nostalgia piece missing. It's like Australians don't go to summer camp. So why would they care about going to summer camp as an Mm. adult where Americans are like, fuck yeah, summer camp. I miss that. And so I, some people might consider that a failure. I've looked at it as an opportunity. And I said, okay, what am I actually trying to achieve here? And I think as a business owner, it's so important and not to be like cliche and quote Simon Sinek, but it's like, what is your why? Mm-hmm. It really matters. And so I did a couple of workshops, worked with a couple of people and it was like, okay, my why is to help adults access play and access their inner child and like actually find meaning and purpose and all of that in playfulness. 
And I said, I want to bring that to the workplace because through my mindset coaching and working with people one-on-one, the amount of people I sat with that hated their jobs. And it's, it's sad because I think for me, I made a pact for myself to never hate my job. And as soon as I hated my job, I would leave. Hmm. And I didn't give a shit about my CV. And I didn't give a shit about, you know, having a million jobs on my resume. It was like, I don't ever want to work in a soul-sucking position. I did it for nine months. And I said, I will never do this again. And so, you know, just sitting with people and listening to their stories about how much they hated their job and how much they didn't like this or that. And it was like, wow, you know, our workplaces suck. Hmm. And looking at statistics, it's like some 76% of Australians are somewhat disengaged. Um, I think it says uh, Medibank has a survey that they did. It was like Australian business owners spend $10 billion a year on stress-related workman's compensation. Hmm. Wow. Um, And yeah, it's just our workplaces are not working. Hmm. And I wanted to figure out a way to bring play to work. And being American and... You know, looking at Silicon Valley and dot coms and looking looking at Google. I mean, I get a lot of my inspiration from Google because there's so many articles that you read about how Google's culture is fun mm-hmm. and they have fun. I mean, I'm pretty sure I heard that Google actually shuts down during Burning Man and the entire really? Google, the entire Google staff goes to Burning Man. Hmm. And Google is one of the most successful businesses in the world. Mm-hmm. And you know what? They play and they have fun and. Until we can, as a society, understand and believe that play is purposeful and productive and nourishing and necessary, we're still going to hate our jobs. We're still going to be taking heaps of sick days. We're still going to feel purposeless and passionless. And so for me, it's my mission is to bridge that gap between work and play Mm. and reclaim play as something that is necessary and productive and and really needed especially for our mental health and well-being i mean Mm. we are all playful beings every single one of us is born and colors and draws and imagines and builds forts and plays cowboys and indians or whatever and then we go through school and it gets beat out of us and the first subjects to go when schools are cutting costs is art and music and um yeah it's just it's so important for me to start getting this message out that we need to have fun at work mm. because it helps engagement and retention and productivity and the bottom line. So I suppose this might, this might come across as a really stupid question, but what does... <laughs> there are no stupid questions, Dustin. Good. Hold on to that really tight edge. That's the next question. What is, what is play? Mm. Like, what is play as an adult? I mean, I don't, um, you know, I'm just trying to think around my house. Like, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, play is not something that's complicated. I mean, reading a book that you enjoy is play. Going to the movies is play. Um, going for a walk with your friend and having a funny chat is, you know, cat videos on YouTube (laughs) is play. Um, everything that's leisure is play. And Mm. if you think about what our world would be like without play, it would be dark and dismal. And through play is how our culture and humanity has evolved through play, um, through experimentation, through trial and error, like that's all play. Mm. And I think play has just gotten this reputation of being childlike. And so, you know, God forbid I'm like a child when I'm an adult, I'm serious and I I have a business and I'm this and I'm that. And it's like, Oh, that sounds really boring. Mm. And yeah. Why do you think think people do that though? Why do you think they, 
why do you think they identify with that? I'm an adult and this is the way I have to be kind of thing and shun away from that, that word. Uh, just through education. I don't think that a lot of education systems still support creativity. Um, and again, like a, there's not a lot of funding in, in, in schools around creativity and our education system is very binary and it's like, you know, maybe the education education system worked two or 300 years ago when we were going off to work in, no, uh, I'm having a brain fire. Factories. Factories. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Working in factories and all of that kind of thing. But now we're like, you know, curing cancer and solving the world's problems and doing all kinds of amazing shit. And that all needs creativity. That all needs passion and curiosity. And so that's what play is. Play mm-hmm. is passion. It's curiosity. It's openness. It's vulnerability. It's authenticity. It's mindfulness. It's connection. It's empathy. It's all those things. Mm. So when you're working with your your clients or corporate or doing workshops and that sort of thing, what sort of exercises do you take them through to try to get more play? We can say, okay, play's good, mm. totally. But how does that sort of translate into actionable? How do you make that become a reality? How do I get the benefits out of that? Sure. Right? I mean, I've, I've created experiential play programs. So basically I work with different um, people and organizations who do really cool shit. So um, I work with Trash Puppets. Um, that was a an amazing puppeteer meets an uh, environmental scientist and realizes that they can make amazing puppets out of trash. Mm. And they started out in schools and now they've brought it to the corporate space. And while making a puppet, puppet out of trash sounds pretty easy, like it's being innovative, you know, making something out of nothing, mm. approaching something, you know, approaching things with an open mind and like I've just watched people make these trash puppets and just lose their mind because it's <laughs> so awesome. And it's not just like, hey, let's put a cup on a string and give it a face. It's like, <laughs> let's make flamingos and owls and crabs and all kinds of amazing creatures. And it's just, yeah, it's about tapping into your imagination, which mm. we often don't get to do. Um, I use improvisation a lot. I think improv is an, is an amazing tool in the business world. I mean, if you think about how much of our day is improvised, mm. like we can plan and we can do this and that and have our diary and then everything just fucking flips on its head and so when are we taught how to improvise Mm. like if we're getting an mba the improvisation is not part of the curriculum um i was actually like i read daniel pink's book a long time ago called a whole new mind Mm. and while he does go through the whole left brain right brain thing which has recently been debunked um he does talk about how a lot of businesses are now hiring people with mfas instead of mbas because of what comes out of the MFA curriculum. What's MFA? Um, Masters of Fine Arts. Ah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, people who have fine arts degrees are a lot more employable in this day and age than people with business degrees mm. because what you take out of the fine arts space is so much more adaptable. And mm. so when you think about innovation and you think about being lean and adaptable and all this stuff, it's like if you have a, if you have a creative fine arts background, you're going to be far more capable of solving problems than if you have a business degree. Mm. I think it's interesting you said improv as well too, because if I if I look back on, I think one of the things that's been the most impactful too from a career point of view, it's actually improv. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if my parents saw some wisdom in that or I was just a bored young man who was looking for something to do, but they put me in improv and, and acting kind of thing. I had no idea to become an actor, but I still remember um, as a young kid and early into my teens doing this in school where if you if I look at it from more an analytical 
view now that I do now, it's brilliant because yeah, it's the ability to, you have to read somebody as well too. You have to try to, you know, you're trying to make the story out, but you're trying to reflect off them. Mm-hmm. There's a certain level of cooperation. It's, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's totally play. You're, you're interacting with somebody else and you're trying to create something, but at the same time, you're still, um, you know, you know, you might be given a topic, you might be given a theme that you've got no idea about. So how do you, how do you create it on, on spot? How mm-hmm. do you still create, you know, obviously it's improv. So you want to be funny. You want to try to be engaging. You're sort of watching the audience and watching everybody else and having a certain level of self-awareness as well too, because there's no, there's no script to it. You're entirely dictated by yourself and the things around you mm. and, and being able to manage the nuances of that so if I look at my professional career and even my academics going through a business degree which unfortunately I have (laughs) um, it's it was incredible where all of a sudden you know public speaking I found extremely easy to do I could I could walk in I could barely know a subject and I could string together a presentation where I would achieve a really really high grade out of it just because of that and then even Mm -hmm. in my corporate life yeah absolutely I mean you get a call out of the blue and then all of a sudden you have to think on your feet and it becomes sort of an improv but the other person's driving maybe a bit more of an agenda or you're trying Mm -hmm. to get an agenda out of it so it's very very interesting about that I suppose for um and just just to to further that like if you're a business owner do you want your employees to be able to be a good listener, think on their feet, support each other, collaborate, um, trust each other, you know, like all of these tools that you learn from improv translate perfectly into the workspace. And so if you have the accessibility to teach your employees how to do that, why wouldn't you? Mm, Absolutely. I suppose more of an individualistic level as well, too, to kind of come back to it. Um, are there things that I can do to sort of, and again, I feel, I feel this is sort of defeating the whole point of the question. I, I feel like an idiot as I, when I think about it, but are there things that I can do to play? Like, is it again, just finding things that are rest and doing more of that? Like, is it that much more? Well, what did you love or, as a kid? What did I love as a kid? I love playing on the jungle gym. Okay. Hide and seek. Cool. So play hide and seek. Play hide and seek. Yeah. Find some find some friends. <laughs> find some friends and play hide and seek. I love this. I think there's I think there's potentially another idea too. Even just getting um, what about just getting like you know like meetups mm-hmm. and just like an adult play meetup that doesn't yeah. maybe called that but maybe something where yeah. Well, my friend my friend actually runs something called Life Garden, which is kindergarten for adults. Oh my god, that sounds amazing. Mm. So is it like blocks and stuff like that too? It's like coloring. They made paper lanterns last time. I mean, I'm going to um, help him with the next one he's doing and bring Lego in. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, that's essentially exactly what he's doing. Wow. Mm-hmm. So I suppose I suppose out of play, um, what's sort of the goal of play? I mean, obviously, you're a mindfulness coach and obviously mindfulness is what you do. Is, is the ability to play to create mindfulness or is there sort of something else that you're looking to elicit out of the, the play and the activities? I think saying that play has a goal can sometimes be confusing because I, I do believe that some of the beauty behind play is that it has no goal mm-hmm. and you're just doing it because it feels good. Mm-hmm. But then we can also look at play as being purposeful and having some, I don't like outcome or goal, but there is some kind of like generative learning in the play. So play can be a space where you access vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like I actually ran a workshop this morning and we played Lego and people were crying because I asked, really deep questions and then I have them build their answers with the blocks. So it becomes an example of what that might be. Um, I asked them to build their biggest challenge at work at the moment. Um, and that really triggered some people. And 
you know, when I run these workshops, I am very, very, very clear in the beginning on creating a safe space. Mm -hmm. We create ground rules around what we're going to share as a collective. And I let the, like I let the participants create that. So Mm -hmm. that might be not judging, being present, um, being a good listener, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then also I'm really big on permission. So everyone creates their own permission slip. And so you write a permission slip that says, I hereby self give myself permission to something. And that could be, ditching perfection that could be accepting failure that could be leaving my comfort zone that could be having fun that could be letting go Mm. and making people be accountable in that space even if it's for the hour or two or three that I'm running the workshop they are now keeping themselves accountable around allowing themselves to do something and is there a way that that sort of exercise translates outside of necessarily a workshop building legos uh, it's up to the person to get to, to take that away. And I think that happens often with workshops, no matter what they're on. It's mm. like, you're in the workshop, you're learning all this stuff. You're like, woo, hooray. And then you don't apply it. Mm. So that's with any learning, like no matter what you learn, it is up to you to apply that to your life mm. and you take away what resonates with you and figure out how it applies for you. And that mm. takes, you know, that takes the passion and accountability and, and wanting to do that. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes, yeah, we can become addicted to workshops and we can just go to them and go to them and go to them and go to them. Same thing, like I said earlier with books, mm-hmm. we could just read and read and read and read and read and then never do anything with it. Mm. So do you recommend from, in, in terms of being able to translate that, because I think, I think that is really important. And I think something I've discussed a lot with a lot of the, the listeners, a lot of the guests of the podcast as well, too, is I've been traditionally a lot of, a lot of aiming and not a lot of shooting as jason price would say and doing a lot more shooting and less aiming kind of thing but i suppose from a i suppose from a practical transition is it about like creating a diary or again putting a sticky note like i know that's something i i struggle with is you've you know i I do a little i do a little exercise in the morning a little gratefulness journal kind of thing like one one thing i'll do today but then you get kind of caught in the day and then all of a sudden it's like oh it's seven o'clock and that thing i wanted to do is not there do you have a particular exercise or strategy you try to impart on the clients or participants to try to keep that mindfulness of that particular activity throughout the day? Well, I think when it comes to like a workshop participant, um, it's getting that one-on-one help or getting that one-on-one support. So mm-hmm. whether it is going to see a coach or seeing a therapist or seeing a mindfulness practitioner, like the workshop is a very one size fits all experience. Mm-hmm. And while there's lots of juicy nuggets that you can take out of the workshop, like how does that apply to you? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when we don't know how to dig deep in ourselves and really self-reflect on that level, it can be very confusing and overwhelming. It's like, I have all this information now. What the fuck do I do with it? Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes it is about going that extra mile and committing to that one-on-one support. And yes, it costs money and yes, it costs time and all of that. But if you're seriously committed to being accountable, go and pay someone to help you be accountable. Mm -hmm. Because unfortunately, we don't necessarily have those people in our lives and it's nobody's fault. It's just society. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you have a friend who can be your accountability partner, who's going to call you and say, hey, Dustin, did you do this? Or, you know. Like I actually, I had a friend of mine the other day, we had this big whiteboard session around my business and blah, blah, blah. And we wrote all these tasks for me and he, I gave him $50 and he said, if you don't do all these tasks by Monday, I'm not going to give you your $50. <laughs> yeah. And so you kind of just do whatever you need to do to keep yourself accountable. And if you know that 
you know, putting a sticky note on your mirror or writing a gratitude journal is not going to cut it, then it is about stepping outside of yourself and knowing that asking for help is okay. Absolutely. And I think that we still have this stigma around seeing someone, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I must be crazy or weird or, or whatever. If I, if I have a therapist or if I have a coach, like it takes more courage to ask for help than it does to say you're fine. And I make this as a joke, but anyone who says they're fine it means frustrated, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> because when you ask someone, how are yeah. you? And they say, fine. Yeah. It's like, what is really beneath that? Yeah. yeah. So if you find yourself saying you're fine, I highly recommend finding someone to support you. Mm, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> it's interesting, too. The thing we talked a little bit about the podcast is um, having... I think a lot of the time back to kind of society and this is why I really love the the fuck up nights that I've I've spoken a lot about is mm-hmm. it's the ability to actually come together and to acknowledge and to be in an environment and be surrounded by. And I know for myself, um, I think I might've spoken about this um, with Rohi Bhagava actually who introduced us about, it was actually only, I think one of those events, I actually started to think about my fuck ups and it was that thread of, of, of a question that a stranger asked me at an event where it really started to put me on that journey as well too. And all the things I've sort of discovered as I've just sat and, and thought about that and sort of, you know, gone through that journey myself as well too. But if you don't say that and you don't put your foot up there and you wait for some magical miracle event that you're okay to have that conversation. In the meantime, you move forward another day being sort of stuck or not going anywhere with it. Whereas if like, even I've found being okay to express that I'm, I'm struggling a bit with something or I'm not having a great day and having even just the support of that person to either listen to me or maybe suggest some solutions or heck, even just tell me that, you know what, I'm probably just being a little bit overdramatic and it's probably not that big of a deal. It's mm. probably just those little things we need as well too. But, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's okay to have shitty days. And I think that sometimes happiness is like shoved in our face mm. and we can't be happy all the time. It's impossible. And just looking at like the polarity of everything in the universe, like you can't feel happy unless you feel sad. Mm. And I think like going back to play and, and the things I do with businesses, it's like the more we can create workplaces where it's okay to have a shitty day, it's okay to be yourself, it's okay to, you know, be silly or be ridiculous or not want to talk to anyone like the open communication that we create and the more access we have to authentic workplaces, the more we're going to be happy. Mm. Like the more we can just be ourselves, the more happy we're going to be, even if in the moment being ourselves means being depressed. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose from the mindfulness point of view, um, I think mindfulness can sometimes be a bit of a, at least I think a bit of a broad topic. It's like, okay, you know, kind of get mindfulness and being present, but what does that actually mean? Mm. How do you, how do you sort of work with clients around mindful and being mindful? Mm. What does that actually look like? It's just finding something that allows you to access the present moment. So that might be going for a walk and just being present in the walk so you're not on your phone Mm -hmm. and it's having this childlike curiosity which goes back into the idea of play as well like walking around the street and looking at things like you've never looked at them before or at least not even necessarily the way that you've never looked at them but just actually looking at them Mm -hmm. like when you walk do you look around at the buildings do you look at the sky do you smell the air like there's the best way to be present is to access your senses so you can't actually be in your head and thinking if you're properly accessing a sense. Mm. So if you're actually really properly focusing on something, you're not thinking. Mm. If you're actually properly tasting something, you're not thinking. 
if you're listening to something, you're not thinking. Like think of a time when you're like so into a song. You are not thinking. You mm. are just so into the song. So our brain is not actually able to think and sense at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you access a sense properly, you are being present. You are being mindful. Mm-hmm. And it comes in all shapes and sizes. You can like mindfulness is not just meditation. It's not about sitting cross-legged, you know, listening to singing bowls and burning incense. <laughs> Um, you can walk mindfully, you can eat mindfully, you can draw and color, um, you can journal, um, you can build a terrarium, like even play, play is mindfulness, you know, play is being present when you're actually properly playing hide and seek, like mm-hmm. you're going to, you are just in the game mm-hmm. and you're so present. Um, and yeah, it's just being able to be aware. It's, it's just, it's stepping outside of autopilot. And stepping outside of your everyday. And like one thing I always joke, if you want to be mindful, brush your teeth with the other hand. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> really simple. Just like I can totally relate to that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that we, we love traveling. Yeah. Mm. Most people love traveling. Why? Because it forces us to be present. Mm. You don't know where you are or what you're doing or what's going on. And you have to be present. And what happens is when we live in a city and we do the same things and we walk the same paths and we go to the same coffee shops, our brain as an operating system is so capable in just creating those pathways and just putting them on the back burner. Mm. So it's like that, that time you drove home and you didn't remember how you drove home because you just drove home on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So walk a different way to work, go to a different cafe, you know, instead of putting your left shoe on before your right shoe, switch it up. Like we have these patterns of behavior, which we mindlessly do like going and taking a shower you probably do the same thing every time. You get in the shower, you wash your face, then you brush, you know, then you shampoo your hair, then you wash your body, and then you get out. Mm. Like, actually enjoy the shower. Like, be grateful that we have clean water. You know, acknowledge the stuff that we have. Mm. And I and I don't do that all the time. I'm not trying to stand here and be like, oh, be grateful for everything. <laughs> I I sometimes, you know, roam around my life on autopilot as well. But it's just having that awareness. That I go, oh, shit, I've been running on autopilot for a while. I need to do something to snap myself out of it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go and, like, go for a walk by myself on the beach for an hour and just snap myself back into to, to myself. Mm. That's fascinating. I love that. I think I think the thing, too, that and I know I resonate well with this part of the story because for me, I had this idea that meditation was very woo-woo. And that never really sat well with sort of how I viewed myself in the world. But thanks to like Headspace and and, and getting introduced to that and it being a little bit more chilled out, it started to bring me around that. And what I actually discovered was I had actually been doing a form of mindfulness, but it was through the gym. I just love going to the gym and lifting heavy weights. And if you have a whole bunch of weight on your back, you're not really thinking about the problems or what you're going to eat. You're thinking you're very, very aware of the the pain or the stress or how you're moving and all that sort of thing. And I found that incredibly fascinating, a really profound moment when I actually started to to put that together and actually go, okay, meditation doesn't just have to be this thing where I have to sit on the floor. And if I'm too busy that I don't have 15 minutes, which even as I say that, I realize it's a complete utter lie. I usually tell myself when I <laughs> don't meditate for the day. But that being said, um, being able to just be, okay, you know, I still have to walk to work or I have to I'm going to go get a coffee. I'm going to go eat. So just trying to try to create some diversity in terms of the mindfulness and even not just meditating on autopilot, but actually doing other things to also break that up as well too. Mm. And I found like we were talking about earlier, all of a sudden you start to perceive the world, I think a little bit different without sounding too, too up myself, but just a little bit more. Yeah. 
I don't know. It's just a bit different. Mm, definitely. I mean, even if you are able to pause for a moment out of your day and take a few deep breaths and actually consciously breathe, that's being mindful. Mm. Because even bre- breath is autopilot. Like we're always breathing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you read meditation books and learn more about mindfulness, it's all about how our breath is the anchor to the present moment. Mm-hmm. It is something that we can do both unconsciously and consciously. And it is our lifeline. And we take it for granted because mm-hmm. it's just happening in, in every moment. Absolutely. I Just as well, I'll tell you one other thing I've noticed just um... – I thought it was quite interesting because I'm quite an analytical person. Like I really like data, facts, figures, and all this sort of stuff. So I've got a got a new Fitbit and the heart rate monitor, and I found it really interesting that I can almost use my heart rate monitor as a way to be present as well too, because there's a physiological response around stress and whatnot, and being able to recognize when my heart rate's increased and go, oh, what's what's stressing me out? Like what's what's going on here? I'm not going for a run, but I've got an elevated heart. I'm sitting, but I've got an elevated heart rate, Mm. and it's really interesting. And I know I listened to a podcast podcast a while back where um, I think it was um, Josh Waitskin on Tim Ferriss's podcast actually talks about how he does mindfulness training with executives and like big, you know, corporate banking or whatever it was. And sometimes sitting for 15 minutes on the floor with your legs cross-legged can be a bit, bit of a jump. People have a bit of a stigma, mm. but what he used to do was heart rate variability. So actually recognize heart rate. And I think he put heart rate monitors on and actually just using that as a tool to bring people aware of their heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And that was a really easy on-ramp into mindfulness. And I found that about myself as well. I can sort of, the heartbeat, and kind of all of a sudden brings you, I've got an elevated heart rate. Why? What's going on kind of thing? And allow Mm -hmm. me to kind of bring me back to the present moment. So just really, really simple things in life. I think that people, mindfulness, again, is this kind of this big, scary thing or this big woo-woo thing. But it's it's, it's easy. It's it's accessible, I should Mm -hmm. say. Maybe not easy, but it's accessible every Mm day. Yeah, it's definitely accessible. And it is just being okay with not being quote unquote good at it. Mm. Because what does that even mean? Like being good at mindfulness. It's just going, okay, what can I do today? That's going to be mindful. Maybe I will mindfully brush my teeth or maybe I will mindfully make my coffee. Mm. Like just doing one thing every day that's mindful is more than doing nothing. Mm. I suppose as well too, I'm really curious. And again, back to the theme of asking stupid questions. But as I, as I sit here and kind of think about this, I kind of think maybe there's somebody listening to this that's, probably heard about what we're talking about today, but kind of goes, why, why, why bother? Like, why is it important kind of thing? I love maybe like, why is it important? If we take that side. The rate that we live our lives and the way that we relate to each other and ourselves is unhealthy. Mm. And when you look at from a biological perspective, when we're constantly in a heightened state, because that's our surroundings. I mean, we live in an age of hyper change. Things is things are going a million miles a minute. Things are always changing. And like you said earlier, our brain is kind of operating on a Windows 95, but we <laughs> mm-hmm. live in 2017. Mm-hmm. And so doing the mindfulness allows our Windows 95 to not explode mm-hmm. or crash or get a bug or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it just gives us that space to just slow down that little bit. And the thing with the human body is that, or the human mind is that it's the the things it can do is incredible. And what happens is we, we think that we we're capable of doing like working, you know, a hundred hours a week and just smashing shit out and just going, 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 like look at burnout, Mm. look at chronic fatigue, look at how many people get sick. It's like our mind will keep going forever Mm. until our body goes wait 
stop for fuck's sake. Oh my goodness. And mm. that's when we get burnout and we shut down and we get really unwell. And so it's just making that link between your mind and your body and bringing that all together. So it's like, they're not these separate entities where your mind is going a million miles a minute and your poor body is trying to catch up until it can't anymore. Mm-hmm. And when we're constantly in this heightened state, like we can only focus and and, and work for so long. You know, I've, I've been reading stuff. There's a, a guy called Tony Schwartz who does um, the energy project. Mm-hmm. And it's all about how to maintain your energy levels. It's your mental, spiritual, physical, um, and emotional energies. And compares the way like a corporate uh, corporate employee to an athlete. Mm-hmm. So athletes, they're, they perform at their peak, but they also rest. Mm-hmm. And they also sit in the sauna and get massages and, you know, like have off season and all of that. Like we don't actually um, have the same capabilities as athletes, but yet we're ac- we're actually mm. expected to perform better than them. To do your 100 meter sprint. Yeah. Every single day. Exactly. And so, you know, our body is very capable of doing a lot of the things that it does, but then once we can't do it anymore, we switch into fight or flight mode, mm. which is adrenaline and cortisol and all of these stress hormones are pumped into our body, which takes our body totally off whack. I mean, if you want to go there and call it homeostasis. Mm-hmm. But essentially, when we are constantly in fight or flight mode, all of the blood rushes out of our organs and into our muscles. Mm-hmm. And so when we're in fight or flight, we're like ready to kick ass or ready to run. Mm-hmm. And so we need our muscles in order to do that. So when we think about headaches and muscle tension and sore backs and sore shoulders, it's because we're constantly in that fight or flight space. Mm-hmm. So when we meditate or when we're mindful, we're slowing down and taking breaths and letting our body know that we are okay. And now we're getting into that rest and digest space. Mm-hmm. And that's when all of the blood, not all of it, but now our blood is running through our organs and our body is just running properly. Mm-hmm. Mm, absolutely and that's part of the reason why i want to have you on the show as well too because i think the one thing that we sometimes miss when we have these interviews about these people um all these amazing people that come on the show and obviously given up the time to tell their story is is a lot of the stuff it can when they go off and you start a business or the the perception of yourself and your organization you know um and the ability to be a top performer there's there's an opposite side of this too. It's not about them being switched on crazy all the time, but being self-awareness. And part of that is also to rest as well. And I know myself, I went through a really bad relationship with caffeine and stimulants for a mm. long time because it was, I was at the time I was going to university, I was doing, you know, all these extracurricular type things as my A-type personality likes to do. And then I was going to the gym and then to keep on that peak state, which I thought I had to be in all the time, I was dumping all these stimulants into my body. And that after a while started to take a pretty bad toll. I wasn't sleeping well, which meant that I was dumping more stimulants in. And then I was constantly getting headaches and mm. feeling unwell. And then what I realized, not that I crashed out of that and have any crazy health effect, but when I realized, when I kind of recognized that, it started to started to change my story out of that and realize that rest and relaxation is actually just as much, just as much, if not more important than, than grinding away and keeping plugging it away kind of thing. And that I've found that when I actually, when I adopt that, I'm not, still not great at it, I probably need to do more rest and relaxing. But when I do that and actually relax, I actually do better. I'm actually at much more of a peak state and I'm where I want to be kind of thing. So doing less is actually doing more. A hundred percent. And I think the number one 
tip around productivity is to rest. Mm. And that sounds really counterproductive. But again, you're not going to be able to do your best work when you're cross-eyed at your computer because you've been banging away at your keyboard for 10 hours. And like, I think that kind of brings us full circle around the idea of play. Like play is relaxing. Mm. Um, You know, like going and smashing it out on the footy field, like you're still playing, but that's like a whole different animal in itself. But, you know, you have that kind of elusive ping pong table in a, in a dot-com office or in a creative agency. And it's not that ping pong. There's like studies behind like ping pong makes you more creative, mm. but it's that what that table represents and what it gives the employees is a chance to step outside of the grind, unplug, unwind and recharge by playing a bit of ping pong. Mm. And that could be a ping pong table, a foosball table, an air hockey table, whatever. For some reason, ping pong is obviously taken off. But yeah, like how do we um, give ourselves those moments of rest and relaxation at work through things like play? Mm. I think one thing too, um, before we carry on, is one thing I love being in an HR field as well too and having a real deep love and appreciation of this and obviously productivity and all that is a lot of businesses go, ooh, we want to have a really fun, you know, relaxing culture, although, or not relaxing, we want to have a really fun, creative culture. So they get these things. But like we spoke about earlier, then they might have the stuff, but then there becomes a cultural stigma against doing that. Because if you're playing, you're not working, even though you might not be doing, you might operating at 30%, that ping pong table give you the ability to relax. But there's so much stigma against sometimes in businesses playing and relaxing and having fun and goofing around and that sort of thing that it can very much be shunned. And then you're back to people who are at the computer, but they're not actually very productive. Mm. So It's definitely creating trust within a culture. So if, an, if a business owner is going to put a ping pong table in their office space, it's trusting that the employees are going to use it as they need it mm. and still get their work done. And it's it's up to the employee and the employer to build that level of trust that says, Hey, I'm going to give you a little bit more freedom and a bit of a bit more flexibility because I know you're going to do the right thing by me. Mm. And you're going to utilize that space as you need it. In doing so, I know that it's going to help you be better at what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then the employee says, "Okay, well, I know that you're putting this trust in me, and so I'm not going to use and abuse it." Mm-hmm. And so it's 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 you know, it's that mutual relationship and that mutual respect that creates that, but it's really up to the business owner to create the permission. Mm-hmm. So just like I spoke about permission, when I run my workshops um, on a kind of more of an individual level, it's like as a business owner, it's your responsibility. If you want to have a more engaged, playful, fun, productive culture to actually espouse those values yourself mm-hmm. and give your employees permission to do that. Mm-hmm. Like you can put a ping pong table in there and then never actually create that permission piece where the trust lives. So like, I think that we have these kind of band-aid ways of doing things. And that's something that I'm really mindful of in my business is like, I'm not creating these like play band-aids where I come in and I do a one-off workshop mm-hmm. and you're supposed to be a playful, fun yeah. culture. We're not playful and fun. Yeah, no. get back to work. It's about me coming in and doing several programs and checking back in and creating actionable tools and being able to implement different ways for the, you know, the, the HR person or the business owner to continue the, the fun and continue the culture and 
interviewing and surveying the employees to figure out what they want. Mm. And I think that's a huge issue as well. It's like upper management's like, oh, we need this because of, you know, because we think this. And it's yeah. like, need to be the, like Google. Yeah, but all the employees are like, well, I don't really give a shit about that. Yeah. Or that's not important to me. Or actually, this is really much more important than this. And so it's having that open communication constantly. And I, I was reading an article the other day that how Google uses this thing called people analytics. Mm. And so just like you have Google analytics, they have people analytics. And it's this way that they keep this constant stream of data and information and 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 feedback happening and flowing so that they always know what their people want. They mm. always know where they're at. They always know what they want. And it's about, again, that trust. And their, and their feedback is not anonymous because they want to know exactly what's happening for their employees. And mm. the employees are not afraid to say, this is, this is shit, or I don't like this, or I wish I had this. Mm. So there's just so much trust involved. Absolutely. Fantastic. From there, I think we should probably uh, segue into our, uh, our rapid-fire questions. Pew, pew. Ready to go? So I think we might know the answer to this one already, but I still want to ask it anyway. So first question is, what book has most changed your life? And I'd love if you could place us as to where you read it and what context did it change everything? Yeah, so it was the, the A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. I read it probably my sophomore year of college, and it just resonated so much mm. with me around consciousness and ego and um, connecting with something bigger than yourself. And again, that kind of just put me on this massive trajectory of self-exploration. I'm curious, do you recommend that book a lot? A hundred percent. Although I do find that you need to have some kind of knowledge behind the idea of mm. say consciousness and awareness and all of that. It can sometimes be a little bit challenging to wrap your head around if you haven't actually gone there yet. So I do recommend reading The Power of Now first, mm-hmm. which is another book by Eckhart Tolle which is a lot more about mindfulness and presence and being in the moment. And it, it can be uh, quite repetitive, but he acknowledges that and says, like, it needs to be repetitive so you get it. Yeah, yeah. So just keeping that in mind if you decide to read it. Interesting. Um, who's been the greatest influence on your life growing up? It can be somebody you didn't know or some other prominent figure. Definitely my older sister. So mm-hmm. she's nine years older than me. And like, again, I had a very confusing religious upbringing. I had a very tumultuous relationship with my mom. She's very introverted and I'm very extroverted. And my sister was always that kind of link between the two of us. And my sister was the one who kind of pushed me to do well in school and told me like, if you want to get out of here, you've got to do well in school. Like, do you want to live with her for the rest of your life? And I'm like, no, (laughs) Uh, my mom and I have a beautiful relationship now. And obviously in my adult life, I I have so much appreciation for her. But as a kid, we bumped heads a lot. Mm. And so my sister was the one that really pushed me to do well. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have done well because my parents were very hands-off. They were very supportive and, you know, put a roof over my head and made sure that I was was fed. But I don't come from a very loving, supportive background. Mm. Um, I don't blame my parents for that by any means. I know that they did the best they could. And I think a lot of people need to recognize that, that your parents are humans and they do the best they can with what they've got. And we're all a little bit fucked up because of it. Mm -hmm. But again, there's no blame. Um, All we can do is just take responsibility for ourselves Mm -hmm. and move forward. Um, So yeah, my sister was definitely a pinnacle part in helping me to push myself. Mm. What gives you a disproportionate return on investment of your time and energy? Um, Probably just the context that I make and the people who are open to sit and chat with me. And I probably have you know, five to 10 coffee meetings a week, just 
speaking to amazing people, doing amazing things. And sometimes it's a business opportunity and sometimes it's collaborative and sometimes I don't ever speak to them again. Hmm. But just, you know, I think Melbourne is, you know, a little big city hmm. or a big little city. And it's amazing how accessible people can be if you approach them in the right way. And I just find that I get so much value out of communicating with like-minded people um, who are doing incredible things. Absolutely. I think I think on that as one too, one thing I've been thinking a lot about is obviously this podcast is an exploration of people and trying to go through this and under, undercover, uncover their journeys. But what one thing I'm really trying to encourage a lot of people to do is to do it, is to go on their own journey of trying to understand people and learn from people and, and their stories and their beliefs and their values and whatever else that that person feels they need to be better in life, whatever that might look like, and just to approach individuals and to go on that sort of interview process themselves. I think it's incredibly profound. A lot of people I've found through even my own experience in starting this podcast is a lot of people, they're happy to talk about themselves. They're happy to talk more often than not about their failures and about their challenges, obviously building a proper context with them, but the ability to sit down and just be curious about, about them and their lives. And it's amazing what you can learn, things that you didn't even think you didn't need to know or you never even thought to ask. The things you can learn can be incredibly profound. And it's not just about so the books and the podcast as mm. much as everybody needs to listen to this podcast and obviously like my <laughs> Facebook page um, and yours. But really just being more curious about things and, and to go on that journey. Well, there's no reason to be afraid to ask questions when you're coming from an authentic space. Mm. Um, and yeah, leading with curiosity. It's really important. There's no dumb question. Hold on a bit. <laughs> no, I know I ask a lot, but I love it. Um, what mentor or inspirational quote has most changed your life and why? I'd love if you could tell us where you first heard it. I mean, I think the get over yourself m- mantra really changed my life, um, which I spoke about earlier, so I won't really go into it again. But I also read this quote in a book, um, which I actually think it was like a like a, like a a Buddhist book on compassion or heart or something like that. And it was basically like, life is full of crap Hmm. and you'll step in it over and over again, or you can use it as fertilizer to grow. I really like that. Beautiful. I love that. I love that. (laughs) Tell me about your morning routine. Um, I don't really have a morning routine, to be honest. I love sleeping. (laughs) I always have. (laughs) I get anywhere between eight and 10 hours of sleep every night. So... Yeah, I just, that whole thing about like successful people wake up early, I'd want to challenge that. Mm. And um, I do try to go to yoga in the mornings. Um, For me, yoga is not a hobby. It's part of my life. And I do yoga anywhere between three and six times a week. Um, I always eat breakfast. Um, I think breakfast is the most important meal of the day, (laughs) as cliche as that sounds. What do you have for breakfast? Um, I'll have like, I'm pretty big. I love eating healthy. I mean, like I I talked about earlier, eating donuts, Mm -hmm. but I live in walking distance of this amazing organic shop. And so, um, I take my food very seriously as far as like making sure it's organic and not full of chemicals. And I don't ever shop at Kohl's, sorry, Kohl's. Um, but I'll have like muesli and yogurt and fruit, or I'll have like, I love, I always make this, um, banana, peanut butter, spinach, almond milk, and chia smoothie, Mm -hmm. uh, which I love. Or I'll make like an omelet or scrambled eggs or something like that. Fantastic. Um, so yeah, I don't really have a morning routine. What seems to be quite routine for me is rushing. 
<laughs> um, I always rush. Yeah. I still haven't cracked the code as to why I do that. I'm starting to think maybe I'm just an adrenaline junkie and like, you know, racing to the wire to get to the tram or the train or get to a meeting must give me some kind of thrill. <laughs> but I'm still trying to unpack that. So yeah. let's stay tuned. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be for uh, episode, uh, the follow-up <laughs> episode. So I find that really interesting too. That obviously I would imagine that obviously through the mindfulness, it'd be like long meandering walks and it would be, you know, trying to find your way there too. But I love that idea that it's not about it's not about getting all the time. It's just about obviously working, working towards that. And you can still have hectic days. I'm sure you still have bad Absolutely. days, but it's about that just the continual pursuit and trying to be a little bit better every day, I guess. And We're all human. Excellent. Um, Sarah, I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for coming and obviously sharing a bit around your story and a, a bit around the the mindfulness. And like I said, this is, I'm really excited to have you on. I think this is something that probably the listeners who've been listening to the episode so far, and if they haven't, they need to go back and listen to them. Um, but mindfulness is such an important part, I think, of of anybody. And I think, in in my opinion, through my experience at least, it, it was always a bit of a missing piece. And now that I found it, it was really the first step that I waited till about step 182 to actually take. Um, and it's something I'm I'm not good at, and I I still I still go through it. But I always think it's just I just think it's one of the most important things. And again, but the whole podcast starting it was really trying to understand not necessarily the mindfulness, but the values, beliefs and all those sorts of things, because I was sick and tired of another LinkedIn article. that's like six ways to start an amazing business or the five things that Google did that you can do kind of thing. And it's like, well, hang on a sec. That's good. But we need the platform to build that off of. And that platform is us and yeah. our relationship with ourselves and all the sorts of things we've talked about. So thanks so much for coming on today. Um, just for people listening, where can they stay in touch with you or reach out to you if they um, want to learn more? Yep. So my website is projectplay.work. Uh, and you can just email me at hello at projectplay.work. And you can also check out, um, I've got my coaching website and my play website. So it's just darasimkin.com is also to learn a bit more about the one-on-one stuff that I do. Um, And yeah, I've just got one quote to leave everyone with. I made it up, so I'm pretty proud of it. (laughs) Life is play, work it. Love it. Dara, thanks so much. (laughs) Thanks, Dustin. Hi, everyone, and thank you again for joining me for today's chat. Please make sure you jump on Facebook to quickly like and share this podcast episode. If you're not already following me, please take another quick minute to hit that like button so you can stay up to date with all new podcast episodes, exciting announcements, and other things going on. You can find me on Facebook at Project Y2, that's at Project Y and the number two. And you can also follow me on LinkedIn if you're there. Don't forget to share and rate this on wherever you find your podcast episodes, and I look forward to having you join me again for our next Y2 podcast.